morning, good morning. We are in James and we're starting chapter 2 today. So if you guys can um, stand up for the reading of God's Word, we'll be in James chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. God's Word says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of, of by which you were called? If you really fulfill the, the, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do not but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. May God speak to us this morning through His Holy Word. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning, Lord, asking You, Lord, to speak to us, Lord, through Your Scriptures, through Your Word, Lord, through Your Holy Word, Lord, that we would um, be as James says, Lord, we would not show partiality, Lord, that we would um, treat everybody as the same, Lord, and that we would, um, Lord, um, love people, Lord. You call us to love people, Lord, but we can't love people if we don't love who you, you first, Lord. So let us love You, Lord. Let us seek to... Um, live, Lord, according to your scripture and your word, Lord, and help us, Lord, give us grace, give us, Lord, understanding, Lord, to um, love um, our brothers and our sisters, Lord, in the same way, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're done with the first chapter of James, and the first chapter of the book of James is, is about loving God with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our strength. It describes what faith is, and it's trusting relationship with God that is founded, that is foundational to experiencing life as it is, as opposed as to it as, as how it seems. It's about loving God in our trials, because you know, we first chapter one, well, James is talking about trials and temptations, and loving God in the midst of that, through that, it is um, it is loving Him more than our idols, things in our lives that we would that we have to. Um, we have to have God first in our lives, and those idols need to be torn down. Um, loving Him more than loving for free, loving for freeing us in the bondage of sin. We struggle with sin, you know. Every day is a battle. That's why we need times like raw, where we can confess sin and pray for another and encourage one another to seek holiness and to live according to God's word. And loving by believing and obeying what He says that is true, right, good, and pure. And God's word is that what it is. So we got to read scripture and believe it. 
we, endure, we ended our study of chapter with James addressing two ways we deceive ourselves about who God and about His Word. One way we deceive ourselves is convic- convincing ourselves that hearing God's Word is enough. Sometimes, you know, we'll go to Bible study, we'll come to church, we'll hear sermons in the car, we'll read our Bible, you know, but hearing God's Word is not just in and of itself enough. We can't just hear God's Word because that then we're just listeners, we're just hearing, but we have to apply it in our lives. We've got to live it out. We've got to um, be challenged to seek to obey God's Scripture, and He gives us the grace, and we pray. The truth is that through faith comes from hearing the Word of God. When the Word of God takes root, it comes to govern our words, our actions, even our attitudes. So Christians doing God's Word. That's what we're called to do, is Christians doing God's Word. Living it out every day in our lives. And that is, you know, things will happen, right? I mean, there will be conflict, but we are to seek to repent and to make forgiveness and to uh, resolve that, you know? The second light comes straight from the mouth of Satan himself, who says that doing God's word is, restrict, is a restrictive way of living. And we hear that all the time. Well, you guys are Christians and you guys believe the word and that's old school and we live in 21st century and we don't live that way anymore. We can... Um, live with our girlfriends without being married, or we can um, go and do this and do that, and God's word is outdated, they say, right? That's what saying lies is, and it's from the very beginning. It's saying that, um, that God is, in fact, a cosmic killjoy who tells his children lies so that they won't have fun, like if, you know, we're to live a life of Christianity that is, like, with no fun. Like, all the fun things is sin, but in reality, the true life is experienced when we love God and we know who God is and in the gospel, so, Satan is a liar. He says, you shall surely not die in Genesis, right? So, God knows that your eyes will be open and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the truth is that sin or disobedience to God's word enslaves us. When we live in disobedience to God's word, we become in bondage to sin. Our sinful desires pervert creation, designed to bring glory to God, and we use it both we use it, we both, we use it, we use both people and things to bring glory to ourselves, which is sin. Obedience to God's word frees us to live and enjoy the life that God has made for us. So let's get into the, that's, that's a little summary of, of uh, James chapter 1. And um, when we read first verse 1 in James chapter 2, James moves from the love of God to our love, to our love for people. Because those are the two greatest kinds. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And some people say, well, just love people. But you don't really have to love God. Because if I love people, then, then I... Then, no, you have to love God first. Because ultimately it's vertical and then horizontal. Our love for God is primary is a primary to our love for people. Um, love for God is primary to our love for people. We cannot love people without... First, being loved and loving God. Because we can't do good for the sake of doing good. Good is God. God is good. And I've talked to people when I'm witnessing, they're like, well, we can't just treat people and do the right thing. But we failed. We are sinners. We're always going to be sinning against one another. But, and we sinned against God, primarily. So we need our relationship with God to be right before we can have a relationship horizontally to be right. We can easily be tempted to become religious Focusing on an external display of faith to prove to ourselves and to others that we really love God. And that's just false religion. That's just fake, plain religiousness, you know. 
But that's not truly honoring and loving God and loving your neighbor. But a genuine love towards others is not created from external pressure to be be compassionate. It's driven by our faith in the gospel, in the good news. The more we understand the gospel and the good news, the more we will love one another, love people. And we'll be quick to forgive, quick to repent. When we fail to love others, it's not simply cold, insensitive, or selfish. It is a failure to believe the gospel. One of the most common ways in which we do this, James says, is to show favoritism or to show partiality. Favoritism literally means receiving the face. God judges the heart, but men wrongly judge by external appearances, include some and exclude others. This type of rejection is the direct opposite to the gospel. And I'm sure I've been guilty of it. I mean, I'm sure we've all been guilty where we see someone and they're dressed in a suit and tie. And you're like, all right, he's like, you know, and then you see a homeless person and you're like, you don't even want to see them or shake their hand or, you know, and we do that all the time. And that's not the way God tells us that we got to treat people equally and love everyone in the same way. Before he gives a particular example of how this being, how this is being played out in the life of the church, James emphasized the fact that an attitude of favoritism and faith in Jesus are incompatible. You can't have favoritism and have faith in Jesus. You're, um, he uses the, an unusual title, calling Jesus the Lord of Glory. And this occurs only one other place in the New Testament used by Paul describe, describing the crucifixion of Jesus. And let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. I was asking uh, Robbie earlier, if Jesus was to walk amongst us, would we treat him as how we know him, the Lord and Savior? Or would we ignore him as a as a homeless bum, someone, you know, we would ignore because we don't, we don't, we don't, if he didn't tell us that he was Jesus, right? I mean, he just walked around. How would we treat him? You know, I was listening to, um, on, on Facebook, a video I posted on my wall where a pastor came, uh, he was going to be a new pastor at a church, a big church, and he showed up as like, you know, just raggedy clothes, beard, and he, um, he came to the church, he sat in the back, but he was in the front asking for money, collecting money. And nobody looked at him, nobody said hi to him, nobody gave him anything. They ignored him, they were like just ignoring him. And then so he went to the service inside, and only one person said hello, you know, just one person said hi. And he was like in the back, and it was like 500 people, big church. And they were going to introduce their new pastor. And he was in the back, all in the back sitting there, nobody cared about him, nobody said anything to him, nobody cared what he was, who he was. And then they introduced the pastor of this new church, and so-and-so. And he stands up and he starts walking to the front of the church. And people are like, just starting like, kind of be like, you know, wow, who, who is this guy? And, and people started like, their face churned because they were embarrassed that, you know, they, how they treated him. And now he's their pastor, you know, he's their new pastor. And he's told everybody that day, he's like, you guys should just think about what happened today and go home. And I'll see you guys here next Sunday. So it shows us that we treat people differently the way they dress, the way they appear. And that's why I say, Jesus was a common man at the time when he was walking this earth. And how did people treat him, you know? Um, so it says in 1 Corinthians, are we there in 1 Corinthians 2.8? None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. From an earthly perspective, the cross is anything but glorious. From an earthly perspective, Jesus hanging on a Roman weapon of execution doesn't look like a magnified Lord, but a victimized peacemaker who was wrongfully murdered. From an earthly perspective, the cross of Jesus is a tragedy 
not a victory, a mockery of justice, a senseless and avoidable. I mean, think about it. The Savior of the world, God, the God that came and walked on this earth and was rejected and crucified on the cross. It wasn't a glorious thing in the sense that at that time, now we look forward, you know, or bad, we're 2,000 years forward. Now we all, wow, he's the Savior of the world. But at that time, he's just another guy who's going to die for him being religious and trying to um, cause conflict amongst the Jews and amongst the government of the Roman Empire. Even before Jesus got to the cross, he was despised as a traitor and rejected as a fool and a demon-possessed liar. Jesus was treated horribly. And we read in Isaiah 53, we go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, we're going to read 1 through 3. Because uh, the Old Testament spoke of the Jesus, of the Savior, who was going to come. And it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And who, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So how does the Old Testament portray our Savior and our Lord? As a man who, it says, no beauty we should desire him. And he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. One who men hide their faces. So again, Jesus was murdered when he was approximately 33 years old. But he ministered, he ministered for three years, but for 30 years he lived in relatively anonymity. He was just like another guy. He looked like everyone else. And that, and that part was the problem. From an earthly perspective, Jesus was an illegitimate son of a teenage mother growing up in the armpit of Galilee in a small city <coughs> called Nazareth. You remember they say, what good comes out of Nazareth? When he started his ministry, he was unemployed, penniless, homeless, and physically unimpressive. All of that was from an earthly perspective. We are all quick to think and speak judgment on what we see. How we are. That's how we act. But let's go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Let's see how God sees people. 1 Samuel verse, chapter 16, verse 7. Remember when the first king was going to become um, part of Israel, or he was going to become Saul. Saul was tall, handsome, big, you know, he was like, that is our king right there. People were like, you know, Saul is like, that tall, handsome, you know, that's the kind of guy. But then when David came, he was a small little guy, you know, kind of like, what is this guy? He's going to be our king? You know, but God chooses differently, not like we do. 1 Samuel verse 16, verse 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The truth was that this man, Jesus, was and is the Lord of glory. The glory of God dwelled in the person of Jesus, the same all-inspiring glory of God that settled upon and filled the tabernacle in the desert in Exodus is now fully displayed in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is not only God-like, God is Christ-like. This is the heart of the gospel. 
So let's go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. That's one that we've heard and we've, we've, um, we've heard before. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Likeness like you and like me. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. God humbled. He came as a man. And James sets the stage for, to explain how we are to live the truth of the gospel because we don't have the reputation of doing this well. In James' church, as they gathered in the synagogue for either worship service or judicial proceeding, the congregation was making distinctions between the rich and the poor based on external appearances, based on just how they look. When a rich guy entered into the meeting, they were immediately given attention and given the good seats right in the front. And right here, look, we have front seats and nobody sits here. <laughs> um, the good seats, while the poor were ignored and instructed to stand uncomfortably in the back or sit in the floor. And James says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. We all do this. We, we all judge people. We all show partiality. We all, if we're honest, we do it. I mean, right now in our culture is a very um, controversial racism, right? Showing, showing people have racism within them. They, they're so the color of their skin. So in James Church, it's most evident in the relationship between the rich and the poor. We treat people differently according to their outward appearance. But in our church today, it can be any number of things. Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, fat, skinny, artistic, non-artistic, pretty, ugly, talkers, non-talkers, young, old, singles, family, the list goes on. We all have our scales, we measure people demonstrating our various prejudices. We gravitate towards those who are like us or retreat from those who are not. We judge whether or not a person can help us or not, and we reject those who can't and accept those who can. So verse 5, to choose the poor. Practically, practically, James can't believe this because the rich are, they're not, in a the, the sense, they're not good people towards them. They, he can't believe that they're giving more respect to the people who treat them so terribly in addition to blaspheming their Lord. They, like us, are consumed with measuring all things according to the world's standard of success. I mean, think about it. If a celebrity walked in here, or a politician, or someone famous, we would not all huddle around them and start, you know, but if just an ordinary person come by, we have to have that same mentality, treating the person, the common person, as a, if you were, not just um, elevating because of their status or who they are, you know? Um, spiritually, James tells them this behavior is contrary to the gospel. Favoritism, survival of the fittest, is the world system and the gospel is a complete reversal of the world system. So as Tim Keller writes, if you guys listen to Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York, but he's retired, but he wrote, he writes a lot. And he says, Jesus, won't, Jesus wins our salvation through losing. Christ wins our salvation through losing. 
achieves power through weakness and service, comes to wealth through giving it all away. And those who receive his salvation are not the strong and the accomplished, but those who admit that they are weak and they are lost. Believing this changes everything. In Jesus, we understand that we are saved by pure grace. We're saved by pure grace. And so we stop seeking approval, success, or salvation in material things. We're talking about that earlier right back there. How do we understand grace? Amazing grace that we deserve nothing and God gave us everything. We're the most blessed people in this planet. And if we stop judging those around us in the same way, if we don't, then we believe we're better and we don't really understand or believe the gospel. I think we have to not get away from that whole, you know, even as we grow in our understanding of who God is and as we grow in our um, walk with the Lord, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we, and, we, and new people come in, we can't like look down on them, oh, these are just the new Christians who don't know our, our five points of Calvinism, they don't know theology, they don't know eschatology. We have to have... Um, we have to treat them the same way. You know, they're new. We were one, th- one time barely starting in our walk in our faith. But one time we were even lost in our sins. We were rejecting God and living like devils, you know, out in this world. So we can't look down on people because that's not a gospel thing. First, the New Testament writers consistently assume that, the, that God chooses those who are saved apart from any merit or qualifications on the part of the chosen. So there's nothing in and of themselves that made God choose who they are, or say, that chose them for salvation. Salvation is not offered to anyone on the basis of anything that God sees or foresees in that person. He does not choose a rich man to get his money for the kingdom. God does not choose the poor man because of his poverty. God does not choose those whom he foresees will one day trust in him because that would make salvation depend on something that originates in fallen man. We actually talked about this on Friday on Theology Night. What, how does God choose people? Nothing in and of itself of you. So God does not choose who he foresees will one day trust in him. So he's not, God's not looking down the courier of time saying, oh, you're going to pick me? Okay, I'm going to pick you. He doesn't do it that way. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. Before you were born. Um... So, because that would make salvation, okay, so, and that's actually, we, we're not going to go there, but if you want to look more into that, it's in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, 11, or verse 16. Um, God's choice is complete based on His grace and on His purposes. James does not stop here to explain or defend the doctrine of God's sovereign election. He assumes that his readers know and believe this, and so he uses it as a reason as why they are doing the faith, they are wrong to favor the rich and despise the poor. When they do this, they align themselves opposite to God, who often chooses the poor to be rich in faith and leaves the rich to perish along with their wealth. And we read that in chapter 5, verse 1 through 6 in James. He's going to talk about it later on. We'll get to it. James is not teaching that God chooses all poor men for salvation and passes over the rich men. So he's not favoritizing the, the poor or the rich. He's not saying the rich are bad and poor is good. It's not like that. Um, rather, it was obvious in the early church that many more poor people had trusted in Christ for salvation as compared to the rich. But there were some rich people like Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Barnabas, Philemon, etc., 
But the numbers were slanted towards the poor. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter... 1 Corinthians one twenty six. 1 Corinthians one twenty six through 29. We're there, say amen. amen. Listen to what Paul is writing here, what he's saying, and what God's speaking to us. For consider your calling, brethren or brothers, sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Amen. We have no boasting. Yes. No boasting at all. Whether today you've obeyed God to the best of your ability and sinned very little, or whether you've sinned to God a lot, there's no merit in your in what you how you've lived, you know, today. Um, God, you still there's no boasting before Him. Although there is no merit inherently in poverty, poor people often realize how short life is and thus see their need for an external life more readily than the rich do, because obviously riches. You, you, you think you're self-sufficient. You have everything you need. So why do you need God? Why do you need His, um, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness? As Jesus explained after the encounter with the rich young ruler, remember that story, it is hard for, a wealthy, for the wealthy to get into God's kingdom because their riches usurp the place that belongs to God alone. And it says, God is to be first in our lives, and if you have riches above God, then that's idolatry. It is those who are poor, mature. Materially, who are also often poor in spirit, recognizing their need for God's grace. Amen. So let's read James chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. If, you're, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressed. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for, it, for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Actually, I want to talk a little bit about here about that whole issue of if you break one, you break it all. I mean, when, I, when you evangelize to someone, they say, oh yeah, are you a good person? They say, yeah, I'm a good person. But if you haven't murdered, but if you, the Bible says if you hate your brother, you're a murderer and your heart. It says, do not commit adultery, but if you look with lust, you're an adulterer with that person in your heart. So, we've broken those commandments. If you tell a lie, you're a liar. If you take something that, respective of its value, you're a thief, right? So, we break one, we're guilty of all. So people out in this world, when we talk to them, are you a good person? There's no one who's good, not one. That's what Jesus told the rich young ruler. No one's good, not even one. You, I'm God. Jesus was, telling, uh, Jesus was telling the young rich ruler that he was God. That he was to be put first, not his wealth or his possessions. And he told him, sell everything you have and go and come follow me. And he left sad, right? Because he loved his riches. He loved what he had. So, we're all sinners. That's our equal playing ground. We're all sinners. We're all in need of God's forgiveness, His grace, His mercy. James singles out the command from Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is cited six times in the Synoptic Gospels and also in Romans chapter 13, verse 9, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. 
Jesus referred to it as the second, as a, as the second great commandment, which is after you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He has want to go to uh, one. No, we don't have to go there. Matthew twenty-two, verse thirty-seven. He added in verse forty, of those two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets: loving God and loving your neighbor. I mean, if you look at the ten commandments, the first um, first ones are broken down to, towards God, and then the last ones are broken towards your fellow man. So it says, "You shall, you shall." Let's go to us. Uh, it says, on those two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Just prior to the command to love our neighbor, Moses wrote Leviticus 19.15, which says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are, you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So part of biblical love for one's neighbor includes treating each other fairly and, and not impartially. James charges them to fulfill the royal law, the seemingly simple command of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself. Living the royal law means really loving, really loving as opposed to just not hating them. There's a, there's a difference there, right? When you just, I just don't like them, or I don't just don't care about them, but like loving them is intentional, intentional. You have to go out of your way to love someone. So the question is, how did our king love how did our king love? Which is our example, right? Our king of glory served and was rejected so we didn't have to be. Our king died so that we might be treated like royalty. We are to treat others like royalty. Considering others are more important than ourselves, including their needs, their wants, their words, their deeds. It's actually not being selfish, putting others before yourself. We fail to live out the royal law when we only love those who are easy to love. Isn't it? So imagine people who do good to you. It's easy to love them who do good to you, right? But those who do bad to you or who, who offend you, that's the people who you have a lot of trouble loving. So we're called to love them too. Remember, what did Jesus say? Is it, if those who do good to you, you can love. But those who do persecute you, you are to love those who persecute you. And that's how we are to live our lives. So, such a practice not only dishonors our neighbor, but it dishonors Jesus himself, who was neither rich, nor beautiful, nor successful by the world's standards. James was aware that many would dismiss their, their offense as uh, not a big deal. In writing to mainly Jewish Christians, he uses the law to emphasize that, that this is not some trivial offense. And he gives us an image of, uh, of the law, which is a large image of sin. A large image of sin, warning us not to put our lives on good and bad scales. So God's moral law is not like a pile of stones that if one is taken away, still looks like a pile of stones. The law, of, of, uh, the law is like a, like a plain glass that if you throw a, a throw rock to it, a stone, it all breaks, it shatters. It's never going to be the same, Right? Well, it, it, I didn't hurt that person, you may say, but you didn't love them either. Sometimes we say, well, I didn't hurt him, but did you love him? Did you care about him? Did you pray for him? Did you share the gospel with them? The and we look at the Good Samaritan as an example. Um, the rejection of others offends God as much as it offends him for adultery or for murder. We always think of adultery and murder as a greater sin than indifference or... Um, Favoritism. 
partiality. James 2, 12 to 13 says, So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So looking past the filth, the gospel, James commands us, not, commands us to do more than just silently not judge. He commands us to speak, to act in line with the gospel. It's easy and natural for us to assess people with, within minutes, even seconds, declaring them as acceptable or not acceptable. When you look at someone, you're like, oh yeah, I like this guy, oh I don't like that guy. It's easy to do that. We are to live, to aspire to live, and to love like Jesus. So let's go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 16. It says, And they and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So Jesus is not swayed by the way you look. We are not to be swayed by appearances, but to draw out the God-given beauty in everyone, because we're all made in the image of God. Just as God looked beyond all of our dirt, our quirks, our mistakes, our idiosyncrasies, our annoyances... To show us grace, so we are to do that with everyone we interact with. It is only by the grace of God that we show grace to anyone because it takes a new heart to even think that way and new eyes. To see beyond the appearance, to draw out, identify, and appreciate the image of God in everyone. So we're going to look through some examples of... Um, of, of, uh, of the rejected disciples, Peter, James, and John. Let's go to Luke chapter 9.51. We're going to look at how, how does God look at people. Luke 9.51, verse, uh, all the way to 55. Amen. So it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village, a village of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So there was issue there within with the Samaritans and those in Jerusalem, and the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And the disciples got upset. They're like, fire from heaven, consume them. Because of, the, because of that conflict, you know, of them not, getting, not, not receiving them. But Jesus turned away and rebuked them. Let's not show, um, if someone doesn't treat you right, don't get angry and upset. Love them. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Don't, um, don't be like, the disciples that tell, come fire from their judgment, fall upon them for, you know, for what they did. So let's go to the John chapter 4, the rejected woman. John chapter 4, verse 27. We're in the Gospels. This is, um, 
when Jesus is talking to the, to the woman at the well. Are we there? Amen? Amen. Just when his disciples came back, they marveled, at what he was ta- uh, he, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Then they went out of the town and were coming to him. The, the woman at the well, she had um, many husbands and she was looked at just as someone who was worth nothing. Yet Jesus was speaking to her. Jesus was sharing with her who he is and telling her about her sins. And people saw it like, they asked him, why is he talking to a woman? Why is Jesus doing that? Jesus was very different in the sense that he, he didn't care about people's opinions. He would still love her and care about her and share with her. So um, let us have that same attitude as Jesus that we can share with people who are outcasts in our society. With people who are drugs, people who are alcoholics, people who are having struggles with mental health. Whatever the issue may be, let us not ostracize, leave them aside. Let us go up to them and share with them the gospel. Amen? Let us be like Jesus. The rejected poor man. Let's go to Mark chapter 2, 21. Mark chapter 21, verse 41 through 44. Mark? I don't think it's Mark. I think it's Matthew. Yep. Yeah, it's Matthew 21, verse 41. And it says, And he sat down opposite to the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in a large sum. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put more has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. So we look there as God doesn't care about what you're giving Him financially. He's looking at your heart. If you have a little, you give a little. God sees the intentions of your heart. Those people had a lot, so they were giving. But the person who didn't have much, whether she just gave two a penny, two copper coins, Jesus still honored her and loved her and said, she's given all that she had. She can only do that. So, God doesn't see what we do for the sake of just the financial, the great, how it is. He sees more of the heart in a man. So again, not the outward appearance, the heart of a person. The rejected rich man. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. The story of Zacchaeus, I'm sure we've all heard it. The story of Zacchaeus hanging on that tree, trying to see Jesus. He was a guy who people hated. They despised him because he was a tax collector and he was taking people's money and making profit out of that. So he was oppressing people. So they didn't like him. You probably didn't like. I probably wouldn't like him. You probably wouldn't like him either, right? If he was doing that to you or to me. So it says he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. He was a short man. So he didn't even, he was, he was rich, but he was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and, re and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. So people are grumbling. He's, he has gone to the, be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the, ha the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house, to this house. Since he has also, since, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen? Isn't that a story right there of not appearance, of, their, of how he's rich, he's short. I don't know if he was good looking or not, but I mean, you know, Jesus went after him because of, Jesus wanted to, to, to he knew his heart, Zacchaeus, and he was going to be saving him, he was going to transform him. So mercy triumphs over judgment. When Jesus is called to a friend of sinners, how quickly we forget that we are the sinners he is talking about. Me and you. He's a friend of sinners, but we're included in that. We judge, we judge ourselves as worthy and others as not. I pray that our community will be a gospel community, one that truly lives out the same mercy that God has shown us. Where we no longer fear being rejected because we're surrounded by people who truly believe the gospel. Where we view ourselves as broken but part of a larger mosaic that God is building. Each with its own shape, size, and color. You're you type A, B, C, D, educated, uneducated, tall, short, big, small, rich, poor, artistic, organized, unorganized. God's community is diverse. We're all different. As part of this body, you have something that no one else has, and you are part of the body that by your silence makes us less. And to those who think that we don't need any other parts except the one shaped like you, in the end, will not be judged by the work of Christ, but by your own works. And they will be found guilty under the law of Christ. Our motivation for loving others is not in the person we're loving, but in the mercy which, we, which He showed us undeserving sinners. So we love others in the same way that God has loved us. And we've been shown much love. We've been shown much grace. We've been shown much mercy. So let us extend that to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that we would treat others, Lord, just in the same likeness as Jesus would treat them, Lord, as you have loved them, as you have um, cared for them, Lord. You've created all of us in the image of, of you, God. We're, made it your, we're your image bearers, Lord. And sin has tainted that, Lord, that we... Um, we're, we're, we're disconnected, Lord, from the life that we're supposed to live, Lord, in the relationship to you, Lord. So let us, Lord, love people who are in drugs, Lord, people who are um, just, Lord, having mental health issues, people who are addicted to, to, um, to, uh, to alcohol, Lord. Whatever it is, Lord, people who are out there dressed, Lord, and they're homeless and they're poor, Lord, and, and society looks at as them as nothing, Lord. Let us, Lord, love them, care for them, and share with them the gospel and extend uh, love towards them, Lord. So let us, Lord, not show partiality in the midst of ourselves or whether. Um, let us look into the gospel, Lord, that we are all sinners and that we all receive grace, mercy by you, Lord. And um, let us love one another, Lord, as you've called us to, Lord, and love you, Lord, above all things, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.